Who is Shaul Magid? Uh, professor Mag Shaul Magid is a professor of Jewish studies at Indiana University, where I think it's pretty cold right now. Cold. Pretty cold. So he's very happy to be out here in sunny Southern California. He received his ordination in Israel and completed his PhD at Brandeis University and later served as the rabbi of Fire Island Synagogue. He's the author of four books, including Hasidism on the Margin, Reconciliation, Antinomianism, and Messianism in is just if I get these wrong, you'll correct That's me. Okay. Isbika, is that correct? Isbika and Radzin Hasidism. Um, uh, his second book is From Metaphysics to Midrash, Myth, History, and the Interpretation of Scripture in Lurianic Kabbalah, which was awarded the 2008 American Academy of Religion Award for Best Book in Religion in the Textual Studies category. His third book was American Post-Judaism, Identity and Renewal in a Post-Ethnic Society, which he spoke about last night up in Long Beach. And his newest book, which just came out, was published by Stanford University Press 2014, entitled Hasidism, Hasidism Incarnate, Hasidism, Christianity, and the Construction of Modern Judaism. Along the way, his religious life ranged from Haredi communities in Brooklyn, where you spent uh, how many years of your life as a Haredi? Six years of his life as a Haredi. Um, uh, ranging from that community to a collective founded by students of the charismatic Hasidic Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, all of which means that he is uniquely positioned to perceive and understand the subtleties and complexities of Jewish history and destiny. So we are going to have a 40 to 45 minute presentation, then we'll have Q&A as we usually do, finishing on time so you can all go back to work and I can go back to work and keep my job so I can be here for our next CSP program to welcome you all. Thank you all for joining us and enjoy the program. Thank you, Ari, for inviting me, and I guess thank Hartley, who was a, a, a good friend of mine, and most of the people that, that, um, that uh, Ari mentioned are people that I know well. Um, and thank you all for coming. I mean, it's really an amazing, amazing turnout. Uh, I, guess, I guess there really is a lot of Torah in Irvine. Um, so what I want to do is, I have 45 minutes, and what I want to do is I want to explain a little bit about um, what, what I'm, what I'm going to do, and then I basically just want to study some text together with you. These are, these are all textual excerpts of Hasidic literature that are translated and that are a part of my book. So let me begin by saying the following. Any, and, and here I include myself. Anyone here who has any, had any Jewish education in America, most of what you learned about Judaism is wrong. And that's basically what I want to actually, that, that's what I want to substantiate in the next 45 minutes, is that most of what we've learned about American Judaism is wrong. And there's a particular reason for that, why that it's wrong. It's not wrong, it's not in error uh, in an unintentional way, but it's wrong in a very intentional way. And so I want to begin by saying the following. What we, the Judaism that we inherit, all of us, from wherever we come from, right, we're all basically coming from a similar type of place. The Judaism that we inherit is a Judaism that is the product of what might be called in the larger sense modern Judaism, which really is a product of 19th century Germany. After the emancipation of the Jews in the mid-19th century, and even a little bit before, German theologians, German scholars, German, German Jewish theologians, scholars, and historians began to rethink, reconstruct, revamp concepts of Judaism that have become what's called modern Judaism, modern Jewish thought, and that has, in a sense, become our inheritance, even though we don't know it. Underlying that project of modern Jewish thought is basically an attempt to differentiate Judaism from Christianity. That is, many people who don't have much of a Jewish education 
know that what they do know is that what Judaism is, is that it's not Christianity. So all of these kinds of things, like the notion of the incarnation of Christ, Jews don't believe in the incarnation. The notion of original sin, Jews don't believe in original sin, right? All of the basic points of Christian doctrine, we're taught this is something that Jews don't believe in. And there was something very intentional in doing that. And the inten what was intentional in doing that is, that is, is two things. First of all, because modern Judaism was in many ways aesthetically and practically and in matters of belief actually quite close to Protestant Christianity because it was, it was emerging in a Christian milieu, these Jewish theologians and historians had to ver make very, very sharp distinctions between why, Ju this, why, the Judaism that, why Judaism is not like Christianity. That's number one. And, um, and number two is that the modern Jewish project, which again we are all inheritors of, was taking place under what I would call a Christian gaze. Meaning that Christians, Christians in Europe, were aware of what modern Jewish thinkers were doing. So there was a sense of um, uh, that, that awareness of that, what I call that gaze had a lot to do with Jews both apologizing for Judaism, in other words, why should Judaism be considered to be included in modern European slash Protestant Christian society? So in a sense to dispel some of the anti-Jewish reticence that was inherited from medieval, medieval Europe. And in doing so, they had, in, in apologizing for it, they had to both make Judaism seem more like Christianity and also make Judaism seem less like Christianity at the same time, right? And in a certain way, that tension between similarities to Christianity and categorical differences between Judaism and Christianity is our inheritance. That's why we can be taught Ju Judaism has no concept as origi of original sin. Judaism has no concept of a human being divine or a divine being human and so on. Now, why is that wrong? It's wrong for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that it's wrong is that the mo modern Judaism, what modern Judaism failed to adequately incorporate and recognize is the Jewish mystical tradition, which is a tradition that goes back thousands of years and particularly came into maturation in the Middle Ages. And the Jewish mystical tradition, in a sense, undermines many of those premises that we understand to be what authentic Judaism is, even though, ironically, mystical Judaism becomes the source of what now is Hasidism, and Hasidism and ultra-Orthodoxy and Haredi Judaism is now presents itself as the authentic Judaism. But in fact, it's the Hasidic and mystical dimensions of Judaism that were intentionally marginalized in 19th century Germany by modern Jewish theologians and historians, in part because they actually understood quite well the extent to which those mystical ideas do resonate very strongly with Christian ideas. Now, there's a pushback against this kind of Judaism as a rational, ethical, monotheistic religion within the German milieu, and probably the most uh, popular example uh, is, is a Jewish philosopher and theologian named Martin Buber, who in a sense, begins to bring Hasidism into the modern Jewish uh, arena and suggests that, in fact, Hasidism really, is, as an example of 
mystical Judaism serves as an important exemplar of Jewish authenticity. <clears throat> However, Buber also, to some extent, whitewashes Hasidism and takes away from Hasidism some of the more problematic dimensions, specifically on questions of its relationship to Christianity. So in my book, Hasidism Incarnate, what I basically try to argue is that if we look at Hasidism outside of its apologetic reading, either in the works of people like Martin Buber, or I would say even in the more contemporary works of, of, in some forms of modern Hasidism like a contemporary Chabad Hasidism, what we find is that the separation between Judaism and Christianity is much more complicated than we normally think. And I think in a sense, living in 21st century America, we are, because we're no longer, we're no longer pressured the way our ancestors were in 19th century Germany, for example. We're no longer pressured with the Christian gaze. And as we're, we are not as Jews pressured to become Christians, right? One, American Judaism might have many, many, many problems. One of them is not Jews converting to Christianity. That's not one of the problems. That was a very, very big problem in 19th century Germany. Many Jews who were emancipated understood that the full, the full circle of emancipation meant becoming Christian. And many, many Jews converted to Christianity for all kinds of reasons. Because they believed it, because they didn't believe it, because, it would, because simply it, 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 it was beneficial to them to be Christians. They can live in any city they wanted, they can study in universities, they can get any job they wanted. I mean, that's, that's simply the way you know, it was. Henry Heine, for example, is the kind of classic example, one of the great, one of the great, one of the great architects of German literature who was a Jew who converted to Christianity. And there are many other examples as well. So what I'm suggesting is that if we look at Hasidism outside of that gaze, what we find is some very interesting ideas that resonate very strongly with the notion in particular about incarnation. Now what do I mean by incarnation? Right? Christianity is built what, what's called high Christology. Christianity is built on this premise. The premise is God becomes a human being. At one time in history, God becomes a human being that the word becomes flesh, right? That's the, from the first chapter of the book of John. The, Christianity, it, it stands and falls on the belief in that particular doctrine. Now, the incarnation is not really original to Christianity. The incarnation as an idea comes about a few centuries after the origin of Christianity. You don't find it in the early gospels at all. Um, but once it becomes, in the Nicene Creed, once it becomes Christian doctrine, it becomes the foundation upon which everything else uh, emerges. This notion of the divine becoming human, and the human becoming divine, by the way, is not an idea that comes, that, that, that it is created out of whole cloth. Ancient Israelite religion, by that I mean the religion of the Israelites before the turn of the millennium, that gave birth to Christianity, ancient Israelite religion, has many instances of the thinning of the veil between the divine and the human. Right. In one sense, you can say that the very idea of, of, the, of the revelation of Mount Sinai, God speaks to human beings, God enters into history and gives Moses this Torah, this book, that itself already is the breaking down of the categorical distinction between the human and the divine. Now, in this case, it's the divine that comes down with a word, right? The divine comes down and speaks 
I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, right? The Ten Commandments. That's the way it's traditionally understood. Christianity just takes that another step, that the word that God spoke to the Israelites at Mount Sinai becomes the flesh and body of one human being, right? In the, the case of Jesus. So in a sense, this very central idea to Christianity, structurally, is not foreign to Judaism. It's foreign to Judaism in the sense, in the, in the way it is articulated. But the idea that the, that, the, that the barrier between the human and the divine, that there's fluidity between the barrier of the, the human and the divine, that human beings can become divinized, that the divine can become humanized, that's something that really is very integral to ancient Israelite religion. And it's very integral to the religions around the ancient Israelites at the time. Right? So what Christianity does is it takes an idea that's floating around in various texts and, and, and circles among ancient Israelites, and it makes it a centerpiece of this new thing called, that become, that, that's called, of course, Christianity, which, of course, Christianity was not intended to be a separate religion from Judaism in the beginning. It only separated from Judaism at a certain point and for certain historical reasons, and when it separated from Judaism is not itself clear, probably not until the third century. In other words, historians have, have basic evidence of Jewish Christian uh, synagogues in Jerusalem up through the middle of the second century of the Common Era. That's almost 100 years after the life of Jesus. So the, sep the, the final separation between Judaism and Christianity really comes largely in the second and third centuries. So you can say, OK, so that makes, uh, there's nothing particularly heretical about that. But once that separation happens, it's final. Once Judaism and Christianity separate, it's final. I don't think that's the case. I think, in a sense, what happens is the very idea of the human divine encounter starts to go underground in Jewish circles. And once Christianity becomes the religion of the polity, once you have the emergence of Christendom in the Middle Ages, right, Jews could never actually openly identify with a lot of these ideas. And so the, the, you have this parting of the ways. But the very idea itself is never finally, it never finally ends. So you have, for example, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the last third of the book of Deuteronomy, is basically um, there's one theme. The last, book, the last third of the book of Deuteronomy, the theme is Moses telling the people, because Moses is the man of God, right? That's how, he is, that's how he's described in the book of Psalms, Isha Elohim. Right? Moses is the man of God, and Moses is the intermediary, and Moses is the one who goes up to heaven, and he comes down, and he has light shining from his face. Right? There's a certain kind of divine quality to Moses after Sinai. And the, the latter part of the book of Deuteronomy says, Moses is saying to the Israelites, you no longer need me. You don't need a person. You have a book. So the whole point of the last, book of De the last section of Deuteronomy is Moses trying to convince the Israelites that the centerpiece of their relationship to God is really the book, the Torah, and no longer the person. And so even though Joshua takes over from Moses, he doesn't really take over from Moses. He's not a substitute for Moses in the way that Moses had that relationship to God. And in a certain way, rabbinic Judaism really follows that line of Deuteronomy. And what happens is that the centerpiece of Jewish, the Jewish relationship to God is through the book, is through the Torah, is through engaging and reading and interpreting and so on and so on and so on. However, what I'm suggesting is that 
the transition from person to book never is really complete. And one example of, of the resistance to that is Christianity. Christianity is a rejection of that very trajectory. Where Jewish Christians, remember, because the early Christians were, were Jews, and they were practitioners of Judaism, that the early Christians said, no, that's not, that, there's, that Jesus becomes the embodiment of the book in some way. So it's a move back to a kind of mosaic model. And then they separate off and become another religion. But continually throughout Jewish history, especially in the Jewish mystical tradition, there is a resistance to this idea that the human being is categorically other from God. It plays itself out in many ways. What I'm suggesting is that in Hasidism, which is an interesting case because it emerges in Eastern Europe in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries, the same time the modern Jewish project is happening in Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries, Hasidism is emerging in Eastern Europe. But there's one big difference between what's happening in Eastern Europe and what's happening in Western Europe. And the big difference is, is that the Eastern European Jews are not living under the Christian gaze in the same way. Now, of course, they're living among Christians. And Christians knew what Hasidim were doing, and so on and so forth. But the Hasidim really didn't care about Christianity. The Western European Jews did care a lot about Christianity. And they had to constantly apologize as to why Judaism was should be taken seriously by Christians and should be, should be a part of kind of modern European society. But the, the, the Hasidim really didn't, it didn't matter to them. First of all, they knew very little about Christianity. That's number one. They didn't speak the languages. They didn't read the literature. It didn't really, they didn't really, it didn't really matter to them. So what you have is a case of Jewish modernity, in other words, Hasidic writers in the 18th and 19th centuries living in historically the modern period that are working and thinking and writing and interpreting and sermonizing right, about Judaism, not caring what Christians would say, because they probably didn't even really know what Christians would say. And they were only really reading the earlier mystical literature of the Middle Ages. And yet, what Hasidism does is it also is another example of the resistance of person to book by having this central notion of the tzaddik or the rebbe, right, as being an intermediary between the community and God. Right? So in a way, what Hasidism does is completely separate from Christianity, brings the very idea of the person the divinization of the person, the divine nature of the person in the tzaddik or in the Rebbe back into the Jewish space, Jewish intellectual space. Right. Now it's doing this in a way, in an interesting way, and then I want to go to the text. It's doing this because the texts, the, the, the one major text or the two major texts that the Hasidic thinkers are reading are medieval Kabbalistic texts called the Zohar, and its interpretation in the Kabbalistic tradition of Isaac Luria and his circle in 16th century Sfat. But the Zohar is an interesting case. The Zohar emerges in medieval Christian Spain, very, very acutely aware of Christianity. But as opposed to what's happening in Germany, where the Jews are trying to actually present a Judaism that is acceptable to Christians, but also different than Christianity, 
What the Zohar is doing in the 13th century, it is actually polemicizing against Christianity, not to Christians necessarily, but to the Jews. It's polemicizing against Christianity, but it does so by actually adopting many Christian ideas that then it uses against Christianity. The interesting thing is that when the Hasidim are reading the Zohar, they actually don't know that's what's going on. You know, they don't know that they're reading a polemic. They're just reading the text as if it's basically espousing particular ideas. It's only very recently in the work of a number of Israelis, very important Israeli scholars, Yehuda Libas being the most prominent, who basically show us the way in which the Zohar is really a polemic against Christianity by adopting Christianity and then using it against it. So in a sense, what the Hasidim are doing is they're reading the Zohar. They're reading all of these Christian ideas that are spoken in the language of Aramaic by using Kabbalistic and interpretive and midrashic technique. And they're simply adopting it to their particular idea of the tzaddik, of the Rebbe, as being the kind of intermediary between God and the human. Now, it doesn't produce incarnation in the same way. Right? In other words, it doesn't give us a Christology where God actually becomes flesh in a human being. That it doesn't do. It never goes that far. But what it does do is it creates what I call incarnational thinking. In other words, it's working within the structures of the possibility of the human being as an embodiment of the divine. Not as a one-time event, right, which is known in Christianity as the Christ event, not a one-time event, but in particular people at particular times. So that's what I mean to say that, that you know, what we've learned, most of what we learned about Judaism is wrong. So let's turn to the text and let's read a couple of texts together and see how I think it, it, it works. The first text is, is, um, is by the Degomach and Ephraim, um, who was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism. If there are, there, are there any, is there an extra one? Okay. So this text is written late 18th century in Podolia, in the Pale of Settlement. And the uh, Ephraim of Sadokov is his name, and he begins the text as follows. It is written in the Zohar, God, Torah, and the souls of Israel are one. That itself is a very provocative term. God, Torah, and the souls of Israel are one, are all one. This needs to be understood. The very life of Israel, now by Israel it's talking, he's talking obviously about the Jewish people, he's not talking about the place because the place didn't exist. The life of Israel or the life of the Jewish people is as it were from the essence of God. And I, I, I transliterate the Hebrew, from the actual essence of God. The life of Israel is from the essence of God as it is written, and he blew into his mouth the soul of life, nishmat chayim, that's from Genesis 2.7, that's referring to Adam. And we know that a person only breathes from his essence. And then he adds another verse from Numbers 19.14, which is a classical way of Midrash. You take one verse that says something, and then you take another verse that says something, and you put them together. And then there's, and, and, and the Numbers verse says, and this is the Torah. This is Adam, or man. Therefore, the Torah has 248 commandments and 365 negative, 248 positive commandments, 365 negative commandments, which equals 613, that correspond to the limbs and sinews of the human body. 
This is how to read the verse, and this is the Torah Adam. This alludes to the fact that the Torah is literally, and he uses the word mamash, which is a kind of Yiddish euphemism for literally. This is literally the essence of Adam slash Israel. God, the Torah, and Israel are one. Now, there's nothing particularly transgressive about this verse, but in a sense what he's basically saying is that the essence of God is embedded in the Torah, and that itself is a rabbinic idea. And the Torah itself, which has 613 commandments, 248 positive and 365 negative, correspond to the limbs and sinews of the human body, which also is a rabbinic idea. But he puts these together and basically makes the argument that when we say God, Torah, and Israel are one, he, he, he understands the Zohar to mean that literally. Now, when he uses the term Israel, why is he not using the term humanity? Right? Because Adam, the first man, is really the first human being, not the first Jew. But yet, the basic assumption, and this is true within traditional Jewish discourse in general, is that there is a categorical difference between Israel and the rest of the world, between the Jew and the non-Jew. The Jew has an essence of divinity that the non-Jew doesn't have. Now, we can get into what that actually means and what the implications of that, but that's an assumption. In other words, we can find that problematic. They did not find that problematic. They took it as a given. We've later kind of deconstructed that and tried to understand, uh, understandably, why that's a problematic thing to say, what that actually means, what its intentions are, and so on and so forth. To say, as for example, the classic example in the in the in the in the Chabad book, the, in the Chabad book, the Tanya, that 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 Jews have divine souls and non-Jews don't have divine souls. It's just another kind of iteration of this idea, right? Take it or leave it. Let's go to the next text. Let's just read a little bit and then try to put stuff together. This text is from the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, who was a student of the Baal Shem Tovs, and his book, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, was the first Hasidic book to ever appear in print. Right? And he writes as follows, also from, uh, also from Padolia. And this is on the verse in Genesis about Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah had stopped having the periods of woman. And Sarah laughed, saying to herself, now that I am withered and I have, uh, and I have to have enjoyment uh, with my husband so old. The very basic story, and you know this, the biblical story, God says to Abraham, uh, Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah's 90 years old. She laughs. How could she have a son? She's 90 years old. She's already, you know, she doesn't menstruate anymore and so on. As I have written in numerous places, it's difficult to understand how this story is relevant to all people at all times. This is a very common trope in Yaakov Yosef of Ponoi. Basically, he says, why do I, as a Jew who is a servant of God, why do I need to know this? What's the point of this story? If the story is just to be taken literally as a story, then it really doesn't serve my purpose as a devotee of God. There has to be something in the story that will help me better understand my relationship to God or it doesn't need to be there. It's superfluous. So this is what he tried to do. If it's just a story, what happened happened, and why should we care? It seems it can be explained in the following manner. The purpose of the human being, here, here he goes into a kind of Aristotelian metaphysics, right? The purpose of the human being being created with matter and form, right? That's the Aristotelian categories of everything in the world has both matter and form, is that he can purify matter he, meaning human being, can purify matter such that it can be transformed into form. 
as it is written, and a person should make them and live by them. Not clear exactly how the Leviticus verse fits here, in any event. This can be understood according to Moses Nachmanides, a medieval commentary, the idea that the status of the human can be divided into various levels. The level represented by Enoch and Elijah, while Enoch and Elijah are very important figures. Why? Because Enoch and Elijah are two figures that in the rabbinic imagination never die. They become divine beings. Right? That's why you have the custom of Elijah coming to a circumcision. Right? That's why you have Kise Eliyahu, the chair of Elijah, at a circumcision. Right? And Enoch, the definition of Enoch, uh, a death in the book of Genesis, says that he walks with God. Right? So Enoch and Elijah are these two examples of figures that don't tie. This, the first, there's a level represented by Enoch and Elijah is, where one, is one where their matter becomes so purified that they were transformed into angels and continue to live forever. Right? In Christian language, that's called theosis, right? where the human becomes divine. There is another level. This is that a person ascends or is divinized, that's the language that I prefer, he can return to the world and elevate those below. This is the meaning of the verse, I had bathed my feet and I was, uh, was I to toil them again, in, from, from Song of Songs, meaning I've, I've gotten to the place where I'm a totally purified, incorporeal being. Do I have to go back down? Do I have to toil them again? It is known that the form, which is the soul, is called Abraham, and the body, which is matter, is called Sarah. That's a kind of classic medieval Jewish idea. Now we can understand that Abraham and Sarah are old, advanced in years. Back to the verse in Genesis. This means that for both of them, matter and form were totally purified. In those days, uba'im b'yamim refers to the level of form and soul that which are called days in contrast to the body that's called night. That doesn't really matter. Again, he's playing on something else. That's not the point I want to get to. Sarah had stopped having the periods of women. This refers to the level of matter that houses physical desire, called woman. Right? This, again, is a Kabbalistic idea that the word nashim itself is the house of desire, of course, the male desire, because the entire tradition is written from the male perspective. Rather, this level of matter was elevated to the place of the male soul that desires the spiritual. After they had both reached the state of purity, they were told to return and have children. That is, they made souls in Haran. That's the, the, the verse in Genesis 12:15 that talks about them making children. Or the Rashi understands that verse that they made converts. Giving birth to a son is thus impossible for such persons unless they return, excuse, there's a typo, from this holy and lofty state to uplift those below. In other words, they had basically been stripped of their humanness. They were no longer human beings. They no longer had physical desire. They no longer had physical form, right? They were divinized creatures. And God says to them, go back down to the world. Go into the world and have a child. Now, there are differences between that and the Jesus story, obviously. But you can already see that the idea of coming back into the world and having a child, I mean, the whole Jesus story is about having the child, right? In the case of the, in the Jesus story, the child is divine. In the case of this story, the mother and father are divine. And they come down into the world and they have the child. And of course, the child is Isaac. Giving birth to a son is thus impossible for such persons until they return to this lofty state in order to lift up those, uplift those below. This is the meaning, and Sarah laughed, saying to herself, now that I am withered, I am withered means my physicality is done. 
Not that I no longer menstruate, but I'm no longer a physical being. How can I actually give birth to a physical child if I'm no longer a physical being? She did not believe that she could descend from the level where her form had completely nullified her physical desire and her evil inclination, that is, her sexual desire. Now, I think it's safe to say that while this is not obviously identical to the story of incarnation, this is a kind of text that a Western European Jew writing in the 19th century would be very wary to write. Right? Because of the resonance, because of the way that it sounds so close to Christianity. But the Eastern European Jews could care less. They were free of that gaze. And so what ends up happening is when Judaism is free of the Christian gaze, it actually sounds closer to Christianity than when it's under the Christian gaze and it has to respond against it. And then this last text, and then we'll, um, we'll, uh, we'll have time for some questions. Because I think this last text really makes the point. Right? I think this kind of steps over the line. And this, is, this text is from Zev Wolf of Zitomir, who was a 19th century Hasidic master, wrote a book called Or HaMeir. And it's about the story of um, uh, Abraham leaving his home and eventually being led into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And Abraham passed over the land as far as Shechem, this can be explained according to what I heard from the Magad of Mizrich, who was his teacher of blessed memory, who explained the verse, this is the story of how the heaven and the earth were created. Now, the term, the verse itself, Genesis 2.4, when it uses the word created, it uses the word behivra'em, right? Which is a certain grammatical form of, create, of, of, the, of the verb created. The sages awaken us to the fact that it should be Ba'avraham, with Abraham. Because you basically, if you just, if you just move the letters and the vowels around, Behivra'im becomes Ba'avraham. That's why I put the Hebrew letters there. And this is, a, this is not a Kabbalistic idea. This is from the classic rabbinic midrash. This is difficult because the sages count 10 generations from Adam until Noah and from Noah to Abraham. So basically, the, the, he's saying, how could Abraham have created the world? Abraham didn't exist in the world until much later. Right? So, the, so it, the Abraham that is, the cre that is creating the world can't be the Abraham, the, person that, the biblical personality that we know. If this so, how can the world be established with Abraham before Abraham came into the world? Good question. What established the world in the generations before Abraham? It can be explained that in truth, this is speaking about the attribute of Abraham, which is kindness, the world of love that is a pure, clear world that no thought can grasp. So Abraham in the Kabbalah is represented as chesed, as kindness, because of Abraham's, you know, because of his personhood in the Bible, he is a person, he's an ish chesed. This is called the primordial Abraham, which is which the term is Abraham Saba, Saba meaning grandfather. So the primordial Abraham, his entire form was adorned to serve the creator with great love until his body was made a chariot for that trait of love. And his divinity and his emanating power, this is the primordial Abraham, right? Not the physical one, the one up there, this, the idea of Abraham. This is called the primordial Abraham, and his divinity and his emanating power was regulated into creation as the sages taught in the past, he is called the God of the heavens, and now his name becomes regulated among creation. So make an interesting leap from this primordial cosmic Abraham to the actual physical person. 
This means that all the creatures that saw the trait of kindness descending into the world, and it's also written in an earlier Kabbalistic text, that chesed, that the, that the, the attribute of kindness said to God, before Abraham, this is the, the person, before Abraham came, I stood on my guard to bring kindness to the world. This is what this, I, the, the idea, the cosmic idea is saying, talking to God. Before Abraham, I stood on my guard to bring kindness to the world. Now that Abraham has come into the world, I no longer need to be, as it is said, in light of Abraham hearing my voice and keeping my judgments. That is, I stood on my guard and brought kindness to the creation. By means of Abraham's righteousness and the merit of his pure body, he made a complete category, a complete chariot for my attribute. Right? So the, the attribute of chesed, of kindness, is saying to God, I no longer need to be a part of this process because Abraham, the physical Abraham, is the incarnate of me. Right? And that thing that is talking to God is the bahivra'im, is that which created the world. This is the explanation of an Abraham was old and well advanced in years. That is the attribute of chesed, of kindness, in its place is called Abraham Saba, the primordial Abraham. What does it mean that he's well advanced in years? That is, this attribute descended and became corporeal, mitgashma. It became physical until it became well rooted in a holy, holy physical body, literally in this world. Now, this is quite incarnational. Right? Basically, what what he's suggesting is that Abraham is the incarnation of this divine quality of kindness that actually took part in creating the world. Now we can understand what the sages mean when they say this is the story of how, Abraham, how, the, how the heavens and the earth were created. Behivraim, ba'avraham, with Avraham. That is the attribute of Abraham in its place is called Abraham the Elder, or the primordial Abraham created and established the worlds from the beginning of creation until Noah, from Noah until Adam, and then until Abraham. Once Abraham enters the world and is the embodiment, literally is grasped or grasped the attribute of kindness and merited becoming a chariot for the world of love, at that moment, Abraham took over the job of being the attribute of kindness to grant kindness to all of creation. At the moment that the, the entire world was, he says, at that moment, the entire world was established because of him, literally. And it ends with the word literally. Again, word mamash. Okay, so I think, we don't have time to do the last text. The text is interesting in of, of itself about Moses, but I think, I think you kind of get the point of what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, is that these texts are liberated in a way that allow them to speak from deep within the Jewish tradition, deep within the mystical tradition. And what they come out with is an understanding of an, a, a reciprocity between the divine and the human, the human becoming divine, the divine becoming human, that really rings, you know, I think that, you know, I, I've taught these texts, uh, I taught a, a series of texts like this a couple of weeks ago in Baltimore at this Institute for Jewish and Christian Studies, which was, um, and it was, and a lot of ministers, priests and ministers had come. And basically, when they read these texts, and I mean, and, and you know, as Jewish texts, it's a complete, their mind is blown, right? Because they, they had no concept that any of these ideas at all existed within the Jewish milieu, 
right? But they actually do. I mean, I'm, uh, these texts almost speak for themselves. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that in the 21st century, where we as, 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 as Jews in America are no longer um, uh, encouraged, invited to become Christians, that we can live freely as Jews, practice as Jews or not practice as Jews, whatever we want to do, right? that we have to perhaps rethink our own, the, the roots of our own tradition by stepping outside of that gaze and not necessarily being the inheritors of a Judaism that was created for very particular purposes in very particular historical circumstances that gave us this categorical distinction between Judaism and Christianity and allow ourselves to, to look at these texts, these very rich texts, and try to reconceive for ourselves what it means to live as a Jew in the world. Let me stop here and we'll have questions. Thank you. Please, yeah. There's a great beauty to the concept of we all all part of God, we are all part of that incarnation. It's a wonderful idea. There's a tremendous repugnancy to the notion that only Jews have a Jew, have a, a soul that is in alignment with God. And there's even a quote from a, a, a famous rabbi that Hartley gave us that if a Jew needed a new liver and a Christian that is a perfectly good, healthy person who's walking across the street, you take the liver from that Christian and put it in the Jew just because the Jew is so much more worthy than the Christian. And the rabbi said, yes, by, by concepts of Torah, you can because it's Jewish soul is, you know, tremendously rural. And obviously that's repugnant. Obviously the notion here that only Jews are incarnated is really repugnant. So my question to you is, can you take the beauty and have we attempted as Jews, is there a new tradition that has evolved and enlarged? No, I see what he, I see what And enlarged it to all people instead of Jews. No. Have we done that? Is there I, such a movement? Yeah, I think, I, I, it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, and I think yes. I mean, I, I would say yes. Now, where does that happen? I think that you see that happen in a lot of circles around the country in a kind of, um, a, an, an umbrella movement that's known loosely as Jewish renewal, right? And what Jewish renewal is trying to do is trying to basically not create Jewish life and practice from the 19th century German apologetic model, but rather to create Jewish life and practice through these mystical texts, but universalize and universalize the ideas. Right? In other words, to reject the very notion that you're talking about, that, that, you, that you and many others find repugnant. In other words, making these categorical differences between the Jew and the non-Jew but also incorporating many of the ideas as a, as a resource and as a source for Jewish practice and a kind of creating what, 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 um, what, it's, what they call at the Hebrew college, which is a kind of neo-Hasidic rabbinical school, global Judaism. So I think that it is actually happening, right? And I think one of the, one of the exciting things about what's happening in Judaism in America today is that Jews are, are now allowing themselves to experiment with these traditions, with these texts, without being encumbered by the prejudices that are embedded in those texts. Yes? My, my experience is 12 years in a Yiddish day school, parent school, and about a half a dozen years in Solomon chapter. 
when Shalomi, when he was indeed beginning what became Jewish renewal. Right. Neor, Neor, Right. He said at that time that he didn't leave Hasidism, Hasidism left him. Right. So could you expand a little on the idea of how renewal, what would renewal do with this text, which makes me uh, acutely uncomfortable, although I understand how you could reinterpret it. It has a little bit of, um, uh, you know, bovomysis. <laughs> right, right. Which text are you referring to? When, the well, when you get into the, the human being uh, becoming sp the spirit, I become a little, you know, and I understand that Christianity has these tales and we have these tales, right. and ours are much, much older, so they're a little easier to deal with. It's like the, the saint stories where, you know, the saint walked and rose petals fell before his feet. Ours right. are just so much older, right. they're somehow easier to deal with. Right. But when we bring them back into the 21st century, I think it's a good question, and it, it really it follows really on, on, on the previous question. My the, my book, American Post Judaism, is primarily about Zalman Shakti Shalomi, and and the Jewish Renewal Movement, and it, it, it looks at it from a different from a different perspective. It's called American Post Judaism. But just in response to your question, I think that um, that contemporary Jewish experimental spirituality, let's put it that way. Uh, is something that emerges in the 1970s with the Chavarah movement, with Chavarat Shalom, and the Aquarian Minion in Berkeley, and the Manhattan Chavarah, and various other places. And in that, what that, what that experimentation is, is to, to, to look, because this is the source of that, of that Judaism, right? They're looking to the mystical tradition. They're looking to the Hasidic tradition. But they're looking at it with historical eyes. In other words, they're willing to contextualize the text such that certain things that exist within those texts are simply rejected because they're understood to be the products of historical circumstances, right? Jews did think that way, right? Now, and, and, and or I would say, it, we could say that they, they thought that way and we can think about the historical reasons why they might have thought that way, right? This is a Judaism of an oppressed people, of a persecuted people, right? Of a people who were made to feel inferior and the classic psychological tool of countering that inferiority is to make yourself superior. So there is a sense in which I think that the, the new Jewish renewal, whatever you want to call it, movement is contextualizing these ideas, but not rejecting it outright because of them, right? But saying, yes, there's a lot in here that actually has to be rejected outright, has to be jettisoned, has to be universalized. Right? We have to see ourselves as part of the global community. We have to make Judaism a world religion. Right? And we have to make Judaism a religion that is not only a religion by, for, and about Jews, but also as something to contribute to the world. And in order to do that, we have to basically erase some of these prejudicial ideas. But also included within those prejudicial ideas, there's some beautiful and very interesting and inspiring ideas that need to be cultivated and need to be reinterpreted for contemporary use. Um, since you, you were the first, I, I, my alma mater is Brandeis University, I did my PhD at Brandeis, and, and she was in the first graduating class at Brandeis University. Are there yeah. some qualities of the Eastern Orthodox Church 
which kept them from worrying and hating Judaism and feeling threatened by Judaism, which the quote Catholic Church had in its relationships. Right. There's, there's actually, it's good, you know, in my book I talk a lot about Eastern Orthodoxy because Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy as a, uh, for those that are not familiar with the Eastern Orthodox doctrine, Eastern Orthodoxy is very focused on this notion of theosis. That actually when a person is engaged in the ritual, either of the Eucharist or some other Christian ritual, they are in the process of becoming God. That more than Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy has this idea that that because, because of the Christ event, because God became human at one moment in time, that then allows for the human to become God through the sacraments, right? So there's a lot of really interesting parallels between Eastern Orthodoxy and Hasidism that have really not been explored. Interestingly enough, not to make a historical claim, a lot of Hasidism was being developed in areas of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. There's the Christianity in the Pale of Settlement, the Christianity in different parts of, of, of Eastern Europe were, and in Russia, were, they were very, very kind of, they were probably very influenced by that. Not again, I don't think that they read it carefully, but it's a certain kind of zeitgeist that might have existed. Again, I'm not making that, connect, that historical connection necessarily, but noting it. So two more questions. Uh, please. I wonder if you could elaborate further on the question that lady made. Say, speak a little louder. Yeah. No, they weren't threatened in the same way, right? They weren't threatened in the same way. Uh, because Eastern Orthodoxy itself is threatened by Roman Catholicism. I mean, there's a whole, you know, it, it really has a it's, a, it's a larger, it's a larger kind of question about the history of Christendom in the Middle Ages. Please, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, uh, just quickly, I, I did disagree with your premise about most of what we learned about Judaism is wrong, because I found that most of what I learned in my, in my younger years, you know, set an excellent basis of just learning about holidays and history. Right, no, that part of it, yes, so, yeah. So just, and I find that the Judaism we practice here in the United States really is completely different from the Judaism in Germany in the 1800s in the response to, you know, to emancipation and modernity. But the question I have for you is Schneerson. Tell me about Schneerson, about the conceited belief of him as the Messiah and how that jives with what you're well, that's a whole other, you know, you have to invite me back in February for to another, another, to another talk to everyone. That's a whole other thing. I don't actually deal with, with Chabad in this book. I deal with it elsewhere. I've published a number of other elsewhere. It's a fascinating, you know, it's a fascinating story. There's a book by David Berger called um, The Rebbe, the Messiah, and the Scandal of Orthodoxy, which is a kind of orthodox critique of contemporary Lubavitch, making the argument that, that after, claiming that the Rebbe is the Messiah after he died crosses the line into Christianity and it's no longer Judaism and he wants to, he wanted to actually make Chabad a, uh, a, a sect outside of Judaism. He wasn't very, obviously the book was published 10 years ago and he hasn't been very successful. Um, but I think, I, 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 my response to that is that, that the, the, the idea that um, and by the way, there is a, a, there is one source in the Zohar that says that 
the Messiah will be crowned Messiah when he is resurrected from the dead. Right? So there is a source like that, right? And there's a passing source that becomes the kind of the, the hook that everything is put on. Right? Now, but the, the Chabad thing is different, a little different though, because Chabad is making the claim, or the, the, what, what are known as the Mishichistim, the Messianists, the Chabad Messianists are making the claim. They're not making the claim that the, the Rebbe died and will be resurrected. They're making the claim that the Rebbe never died. They're making the claim that the Rebbe is like Abraham in this told of Yaakov, that he became decorporealized, right? In other words, the language that Chabad uses is that he became liberated from his body, right? Now, this actually sounds much more like the uh, Ismaili notion of the Mahdi, the Islamic notion of the Mahdi who, who, who became disembodied and is kind of floating in some incorporeal form will eventually come back and be the Messiah for the, for the Muslims. But it's a, it's a different claim of saying they're not, in other words, in a certain way, they're claiming these, this, that, the, that the, 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 the grave in Queens is empty, right? That he has actually been liberated from that. So there may be a physical body there, but nothing more than that. Anyway, the Chabad story is a fascinating story and uh, has to be a, a time for another talk. Right, but since, since we have you here, just a quick question. Since you spent six years as a Haredi, just quickly, I had a question. Why did you do that? And what <laughs> why you, what why did, would you do that? And what did you <laughs> learn from that? How does that relate, if at all, to this book? Well, it relates to the book because all scholarship is autobiographical, I think, in a way, right? It's just sometimes it takes us 10 or 20 years to come, kind of come around to it. Um, again, that's a long story. I mean, I, I was a kind of, you know, child of the counterculture and, you know, lived on a commune in New Mexico and did, you know, had a VW bus and traveled around the country. And in a certain sense, there's not really a great deal of distance between that and being an ultra-Orthodox Jew in Mason and Jerusalem. It's, it's basically, you know, you're looking for alternative lifestyles. You're looking to live otherwise. So it was, it was this form of a spiritual life um, which it really was that focused on a particular kind of, you know, a life of devotion and, and, and study. And it was something that I, you know, after spending years, you know, as a macrobiotic and doing acupuncture and so on, it kind of, it, 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 it bled into that. Through various circumstances, I find myself, found myself in Israel, I found myself studying in yeshiva, and I kind of fell into it. Now, uh, for me, the more interesting question is how I fell out of it, right? <laughs> And because most of the people that kind of came in with me from different places are still there, right? And they have eight or nine children and their grandparents 10 or 12 times over. And they just, you know, you get into a life and then at a certain point in time, you kind of get stuck, right? You know, you get married, you have a family, you have to make a living. I, after studying in that world for, for, for a long time, or for the time that I studied, I began to realize that I was asking questions not only that they couldn't answer, but I was asking questions that they couldn't even tolerate as questions. Right. Right. And, and when I, as, as I started doing that more and more, I started, and it, it, it wasn't that I was pushed out, but I realized that I, I find it was a kind of, it was a bit of a self-exile. I started to realize that I was deeply engaged in this, in this life, in this world, in this literature, but the lifestyle itself suddenly I, I began to see, and this is very true of the Haredi world, I mean, there's a lot of beauty in it, there's a lot of intensity in it, there's a very strong dark side, 
right, in terms of its attitude toward the Gentile, in terms of its misogyny, in terms of its sense of self, collective self. And that dark side, and, and everyone that I went into that world with realized that, everyone realized that. The question is what you're willing to live with and what you're not willing to live with. And at a certain point, I really wasn't willing to live with it, so I slowly made my way out of that world. You know, I cut my pass off, I took my hat off, all the kinds of things, you know. And, but I never really gave up on the text. These are, these are still the texts that I studied then, they're just the texts that I study now. So in some way, I've tried to kind of, I've internalized that world, but externally, I live in a different way. Thank you, thank you very much.